This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, let's go ahead and jump in. I'll say a word of prayer, and then we'll begin with today's topic, which is, Has Science Replaced the Need for Faith? Let us pray. Father God, we stand in incredible awe of you. We recognize you as the sovereign, the the creator of heaven and earth. Father, I just pray today as we take some time to, to unpack how you revealed yourself, that you might give us clarity of thinking, that we might better understand and appreciate you and your works, and we might learn how to communicate the truth about you to those who don't yet have that saving knowledge. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So you might have seen some internet memes that go something like this. Here's what I pulled up. It goes, science. It's God's way of telling you he doesn't exist. Or there's a great number in this category just suggesting that now that we know science, we don't need faith. Maybe we needed faith when we were a primitive people. Maybe we needed faith when we didn't understand the universe very well, when lightning was a mysterious thing, when the stars in heaven were cryptic messages. But now that we have science... We don't need faith anymore. Has anyone come across this idea in any, in any capacity? Yeah, you've probably come across it in some form. So what I want us to do is I want us to judge and evaluate that claim. In particular, I want us to compare two worldviews. The first is naturalism. Naturalism is the claim is that the natural is all that there is. There is no supernatural. Carl Sagan put it this way in his show Cosmos. He said, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. That is the, that merely the natural, the physical, matter and energy, right? Nothing beyond that. No spirits, no angels, no demons, no God, just the natural. And we're going to contrast that with Christianity, with, with theism, belief in God, but in particular a creator God who has entered into time and history. And so um, C.S. Lewis, he, he put it this way. He said that when I became a Christian, he says, I became a Christian I believe in Christianity as I believe in the risen sun. Not just because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And so Lewis is saying that his faith isn't just one belief among many. That he has his scientific knowledge and his historical knowledge and his aesthetic knowledge and then his, his faith. But he says his faith opens up a window by which he understands the world as a whole. Ellen White made a similar statement when she said, Christ, his character and work, is the center and circumference of all truth. In him is the complete system of truth. And so Lewis and and White and others understood that Christianity isn't just one belief among many, but it's our way to make sense of the world as a whole. And what I want to try and argue today is that Christianity has incredible sense-making power. That is, Christianity makes sense of the world around us. And when we're able to make this case and establish it to others, we can help others see that Christianity isn't in tension with science. Rather, Christianity helps us understand and appreciate the discoveries of science. Yeah, you have a quick question? Yeah. Well, let me give you the mic so we can get it on recording. You want to speak right into the mic? Now, Carl Sagan mm-hmm. and the cosmos, I've watched some of it, but... I've watched some of it, but... He doesn't really say that the cosmos is everything. He doesn't say there's no God. Okay, very good. He says mm-hmm. that the cosmos includes all that. Includes all that. So, so there is the view of pantheism, that the universe itself is God, and I don't think he's advocating that. But there are other worldviews that we could compare of, of God is somehow part of the universe, the universe itself is God. And perhaps that's the, the direction you're thinking. But I, I just want to contrast the two claims of the biblical claim of there being a creator God with naturalism, the claim that there is no God at all. It's merely the physical, merely the, the natural universe. Okay, let's go ahead and jump into it. And I want to suggest there's a number of features of the universe that Christianity makes sense of. And the first one is the origin of the universe. Genesis 1.1 begins after all of the claim that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's not a controversial claim today, 
because we have overwhelming scientific agreement that the universe had a beginning. Beginning with Hubble, when, as he was observing the world around us, Hubble noticed that there's some redshift that occurs when looking at distant galaxies, and he came to the conclusion that the galaxies are moving away from each other, that the universe is expanding. But then if you play the story in reverse, the universe is expanding, you rewind the story, you get back to some origin of the universe. So the universe is expanding, you can rewind this, we have some origin of the universe. This is commonly referred to as the Big Bang, right? Interestingly enough, the term the Big Bang was a critique of this theory. A number of individuals were resistant to the idea that the universe had a beginning. In the 1900s, while it was being proposed, this model that the universe had a beginning, a number of people thought, no, that can't be possible. Because throughout the centuries, we believed that the universe was infinite. Infinite in time. It had always existed. And that's really convenient. Because if the universe had always existed, then you don't have to explain where it came from. You simply say it always was. It's just a brute fact. It's always been here. But suddenly, if the universe has a beginning, it then begins to cry out for an explanation of where did the universe come from. What I want us to do is contrast the biblical claim. Interestingly enough, the Bible begins by affirming the universe had a beginning. Thousands of years ago, Scripture declared this. And it wasn't until the 19th century that our science caught up and was able to see, oh, in fact, there's really good reason for us to believe that the universe had a beginning. So if you had lived a couple hundred years ago, people might have thought it was a little bit weird to believe in Genesis 1-1, but now we have overwhelming evidence that, in fact, the universe did have some beginning, with some singularity point at the very beginning. But I want us to contrast this with how might a naturalist, one who rejects the narrative of Scripture, how might he explain this? And so I'm going to give one such explanation. My hope for today is to get through this so we have some time for Q&A at the end. So if you want to hold on to your question, we'll um, save some time at the end for it. But I'll try, and I'll try and make sure we have plenty of time for your questions. So here's one attempt to explain the origin of the universe from an entirely naturalistic perspective. That is, without making any appeal to God. Stephen Hawking, the recent physicist, in his book, The Grand Design, wrote, Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Notice he's trying to appeal to, to explain the origin of the universe, make sense of the origin of the universe without appealing to God. What I want us to do is think about his statement right here. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Now, when you hear that, do you notice anything possibly problematic about it? Let me hear from a couple of you. Where did the law of gravity come from? Great. So this requires appealing to the law of gravity. And so it posits the existence of the law of gravity. So in fact, it doesn't claim, it says the universe came from nothing, and yet somehow there was a law, so there was something. So that's one problematic aspect. Let me hear from a couple more of you. How is this claim problematic? It says it comes from nothing. You need mass to start something. Okay, great. So again, pointing out this claim, it comes from nothing. What does that mean? Because it seems to say that it's coming from something. There's some law that already exists. But also, how can... Well, let me let one more, two, more, two of you more chime in. The law of gravity needs matter to act. Okay, th this is a really good point. The law of gravity is merely a mathematical descriptive law. That is, the law of gravity describes how matter behaves. It is not a creative law. Let me try and demonstrate the difference. Does anyone have a wallet on you with some cash in it? <laughs> yeah, okay, right here. In your wallet, we have three fives. So I could write down a mathematical description of his money. It might look something like five plus five plus five. That would describe the money he has, right? The, the, the mathematics is describing it. But if I was to suddenly write plus 100, would $100 pop into existence? I mean, that would be super convenient, right? But, but that's not how mathematics works. Mathematics has descriptive power. It can describe the world, but it doesn't have creative power. So the law of gravity, while it describes the world and how it works, 
it doesn't have creator power to be able to bring it into being. Is that, is that distinction clear? Mathematics describes, but it doesn't actually create. Any other problems you notice with this, this statement? Yeah, one more. Uh, well, since the universe can't create itself, then how would it... I think you've already hit it on the head when you pointed out this uh, problem of it creating itself, right? Yeah. So, so what does it mean to create itself? Because in order to be created, you must have some other cause, right? And so you have a cause and an effect, but how can an effect be its own cause? And so here you have another... So, so it seems like there's at least three or four problems of this statement. There's a law such as gravity. There's something. So it's not actually coming from nothing. Where did the law come from? Also, how can a law have creative power if it's merely a mathematical description? And finally, it doesn't make sense to say the universe created itself, right? That's a contradiction in terms. Okay, I want us to keep moving, but I think we can begin to see that whereas Scripture gave a, a, an explanation of where the universe came from, it, it claimed the universe began to exist thousands of years before we had the data to support it, that these naturalist explanations seem to fall short. But this raises an objection, and maybe you've heard this objection before. Who created God? Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, this is one of his central arguments. He goes, okay, you're asking who created the universe, but ahaha, uh, I can turn it back against you. I can say, if you think that God created the universe, then I can ask, who created God? Ah, checkmate, Right? What are you going to posit? Maybe there's some other God who made God, but then where did he come from? And, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to suggest that, that the same problem you face in explaining the universe, you can then pose unto God. Has anyone heard this objection before? Who created God? How might you respond to it? Is this the all-powerful objection that it seems to be? Yeah. You want to chime in? Uh, well, if they say... Th- that mm-hmm. then the you would say that God wasn't created; He always existed. Okay, very good. Like, mm-hmm. for example, they say that the universe always existed by going in circles. Okay, this is this is fantastic. So you point out there's a crucial difference. The reason we were asking about who created the universe is because the universe had a beginning, right? It's when we came to recognize the universe had a beginning that it forced the question upon us of where it came from. You might run the argument something like this. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe had a beginning. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. And you can ask, what is that cause? And we can see that naturalistic attempts to explain the cause seem to come short, whereas Christianity offers some explanation. But the same argument cannot be applied to God because God did not have a beginning in the same way that the universe does. Christians have always affirmed that God is without beginning. For instance, in Psalm 90, verse 2, we're told, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you were formed, the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That God has always existed. And therefore, the same problem doesn't extend to God. It only makes sense to ask what caused something if that something had a beginning. Okay, so the first thing I want to suggest that Christianity makes sense of is the beginning or the origin of the universe. The second aspect of the reality that that Christianity does a really good job making sense of is the fine-tuning of the universe. So when we go and we do physics... We, we're doing physics, we're explaining the world, and we come up with all these various constants. Constants like the gravitational constant, or, or the speed of light, or, or the strong and weak nuclear forces. We come up against all these various constants. Just mathematical constants that, that, that seem to be fixed at various values, but for no particular reason. Our theory doesn't tell us why they are that value. What scientists came to realize over the last century is that these constants are finely tuned. That is, if they were slightly different, life wouldn't be possible. Let me give you just one example of how this fine-tuning takes place. 
If you compare, for instance, the value of the electromagnetic force with the strong nuclear force, you can see that if the values were just slightly different, life wouldn't be possible. For instance, if the electromagnetic force was significantly stronger, then you wouldn't be able to get any of the heavy elements, carbon, anything like this. If it was weak, but that the value of the strong nuclear force was sufficiently strong, then you wouldn't be able to get hydrogen. If the value of strong nuclear force is too weak, you wouldn't be able to create stars that can shine and produce starlight. If the electromagnetic force is, is sufficiently strong, it's as well as the strong nuclear force, then you can't even get chemical reactions. Chemistry is not possible. And so what this is pointing out is, is they have to be just finely tuned in just this right little range. Sometimes it's called the Goldilocks zone. In just the right little range. And if it's not there, you can't get complex chemistry. You can't even get stars. And so if you don't have stars, you don't have heavy elements, it's very difficult to imagine how you could possibly get something as complex as life. Some of these other constants, if you look at the um, rate of the expansion of the universe, for instance, if it was slightly different, the universe wouldn't even exist. The universe would collapse back upon itself. And so these are not, this is not merely saying something like, oh, if we were a little bit further from the earth, it would be too cold for life. If we're a little bit close, it would be too warm. Because you can imagine, well, maybe life could adapt and, and survive in a colder or warmer environment. This is saying there wouldn't even be chemistry, right? We wouldn't even have stars. We wouldn't even have complex elements, right? And under those conditions, perhaps not even a universe if the, if the values are not right. Under those conditions, it's, impo- it's very difficult to imagine how there could be any form of life. So Fred Hoyle, an atheist, commented on this. He noted that nothing has shaken my atheism as much as this discovery. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with the chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put the conclusion beyond question. So, so he still, see, I'm holding on to my atheism, but he says, this thing really makes me wrestle with it. Because you look at these numbers, it's as if there's been, someone has just finely tuned the dial on a radio to get it to be the exact right values. Hoyle gives us an analogy to help us understand these incredible odds, the incredible impossibility that's coming about. For me to show you this analogy, I need two volunteers. So can I have two people come forward? Yeah, come, come ahead. Two individuals, and I need you to make sure you're not afraid of being blindfolded. So are you okay? Do you consent to me blindfolding you? Fantastic. Okay. Let me, uh, if you want to maybe take off your glasses. I'm going to blindfold you. And we're going to, if you just want to turn around, and we're going to try to imagine what's the probability of these values being finely tuned just by chance, just by blind forces, if there were no super intellect behind it. We have two super intellects right here, but I'm going to blind them. So you're going to be my blind forces of nature. Okay. And Fred Hoyle gives a comparison involving a Rubik's Cube. So let me shuffle it up a little bit, and I'm going to place it in your hand, and I'm going to invite you just to begin turning it at random. And you're going to try and solve that Rubik's Cube. And I'm going to hand you one as well. Now, the Rubik's Cube has 43 quintillion possibilities. That's 43 followed by 18 zeros. If you were to move through all the possible combinations, one per second, it would take you a little bit over a trillion years to go through them all. And so this is Fred Hoyle's analogy. He says, imagine someone blindly turning a Rubik's Cube. What are the odds that they would stumble upon the solution? What they would get there eventually. We would just have to wait a trillion years, perhaps, right? He'd get there eventually. But Fred Hoyle says it's more than that. Because it's not just one constant that's finely tuned. But they're finely tuned together. You have to get both values to align together. And so he says, it's like two people solving the Rubik's Cube, and they both come across a solution at the exact same moment. He says, that's how you should think about it. But it's not just two constants. We look back, there are dozens of these 
various constants that all have to be finely tuned. So it's as if we were all blindfolded and we were all turning our Rubik's Cubes. And suddenly at the exact same moment, we all stumbled upon the solution. He says, that's what it's like. That's what happened. And his conclusion is that the only way for me to make sense of this, despite being an atheist, is there must be some kind of super intellect behind it. Okay, you guys can take off your blindfolds. You can see if you solved it. Okay, not quite. Not quite. It's all messed. That's right. Thank you very much. Just give these guys a hand. Okay, so what are some naturalistic attempts to explain fine-tuning? For Hoyle, says it seems like there's some super intellect. How can we possibly explain this? Well, there have been some attempts to explain fine-tuning without appealing to God. And so we should review them. Here's one. It's called the anthropic principle. It goes like this. It's very clever. Conditions that are observed in the universe must allow intelligent life to exist, else we wouldn't be here to observe it. That is, if the constants were a little bit different, and they wouldn't allow life to exist, maybe no chemistry to, no heavy elements to exist, well, then we couldn't be here to observe it. And the fact that we're here means that the constants must be this way. Ah, problem solved. Are you satisfied with that explanation? How does that explanation come short? It's true, isn't it? That in order for us to be here to observe the constants, they must be just right to permit life to exist. So it's a true statement. Ah, very good. It does not have explanatory power. Although it's a true statement, it doesn't actually explain why the constants are that way. Think of an analogy. You are blindfolded up here, and imagine that we were all trained marksmen. Excellent shots. And we all took our guns and aimed them at you, and we all fired. Hundreds of bullets coming your way. And after several minutes of these bullets flying, we stop. And you take off your blindfold. And incredibly, we all missed. And you say, this is incredible. And you go, no, no, it's not incredible. Because if we had hit you, you wouldn't be here to observe it. Therefore, there's nothing to explain. Well, no. It's true that if we had hit you, you wouldn't be here to observe it, right? But that doesn't explain how we all missed. Or jump out of a plane, right? No parachutes. Land on the ground. Miraculously, you're fine. You think if something incredible has happened, I come up and I say, no, 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 no. If you had died, you wouldn't be here to marvel at it. That's true, right? You wouldn't be... But that doesn't explain why you lived. So why the anthropic principle is a true statement, and even a helpful statement to let us know that we should expect to find conditions that create, allow life to exist, it's not an explanatory statement. It doesn't actually explain why the conditions are that way. Is that distinction clear? Okay. Well, here's one more attempt. The multiverse. Have you ever heard of this before? The multiverse? Yeah, this has been gaining some traction lately. It's like some of the sexy physics that we like to roll out sometimes, right? So, so it's like, if getting all these constants right is like winning the lottery, and that's quite remarkable, well, here's how you, you make it less remarkable. Imagine you had bought, you know, 10 million tickets or something. So this is what the multiverse does. It says, well, okay, it would be very remarkable for one universe to be finely tuned, but perhaps there are innumerably many universes, infinitely many universes, and each one has the constant slightly different. The gravitational force is maybe a little bit stronger in this universe. The strong electromagnetic force is a little bit stronger. The strong nuclear force is a little bit uh, higher here and lower there. If that's the case, then you would expect one of those universes to have just the right constants, and therefore you've explained it. Why is our universe so special? Well, there are infinitely many universes, and so you expect one of those to be special, right? What's the problem with this reasoning? How might you respond? Let me give someone a chance to, to think about this. What, what do you make of this multiverse theory?
Right? Yeah. It, it lacks falsifiability. Oh, very good. So it's a great story. It's a great uh, uh, account of, of how things may be. But it doesn't seem to be science in the fact there's no way for us to test this. Universes are, by definition, causally isolated. That is, we can't have knowledge about the other universes. And so we could never possibly know if there actually are other universes. And so it seems to not really be science. One individual, he put it this way. He says, in a sense, multiverse enthusiasts take a leap of faith, every bit as big as the leap to believing in a creator. In the end, this isn't science, so much as philosophy using the language of science. That is, if you're pausing the existence of infinitely many universes without any evidence, without even the possibility of evidence, well, that's, that's quite the leap of faith. This author said just as big as believing in a creator, but it seems almost bigger. You're pausing the existence of infinitely many universes, right? That's an incredible claim. But there's one more objection that can be made to the multiverse that I believe actually can falsify it. This was Roger Penrose made this observation. And Roger Penrose pointed out that if we have infinitely many universes, then what's much more likely is to have a universe where there's a small amount of order in a sea of chaos. That is, instead of the whole universe being finely tuned, what would be much more likely would just to have a small portion of the universe finely tuned and the rest of it totally chaotic. That as if you have infinitely many universes, the vast majority of them would have just a little bit fine-tuned and the majority chaotic. And it would be very uncommon, it would be very rare to have the whole thing fine-tuned. And so when we look into our universe, that's what we should expect to see. A little bit of fine-tuning locally, but the rest being a sea of chaos. But that's not what we observe in our universe. Actually, Roger Penrose took it one step further. He said, the most likely scenario in which you would get life in one of these universes would be a single brain popping into existence and the rest of the universe being completely unordered and chaotic. Because a single brain is, is less complicated than the entire universe being finely tuned. And so he says if you take the multiverse seriously, the philosophical implication seems to be that you are most likely a single brain in an illusion of a universe. This is kind of trippy stuff, right? This is, this is called, this is called Boltzmann brain. It's, it's if you actually infinitely many universes, it's much more likely for single brains to be popping into existence, creating an illusion of the world around them, than for an actual entire universe to come into existence that's finely tuned. And so Roger Penrose's objection is, if you really believe those infinitely many universes that are all just slight variations of each other, then you should probably believe that, that you are a brain in a sea of chaos and everything is an illusion. But he says that's an absurd conclusion, and therefore we can reject the multiverse hypothesis. Do you, do you track with that objection? Okay. Okay. Well, I think it's enough to appreciate the multiverse is just a trippy, wild idea with no scientific basis. Let's talk more in the Q&A. Cool. Yep. You want to... They found a way to observe multiverses. So I, I'm going to really push back on that. Because by definition, you cannot observe another universe. They're causally isolated. Through wormholes. Okay. So again, so this is another theoretical uh, entity, a wormhole, that we, we don't have any evidence of them existing. So it's a theoretical entity. It, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. But we don't actually have uh, evidence of wormholes existing. So we, we can talk more about this. But we seem to be entering more into the territory of science fiction rather than science when positing these things. Okay. Here's one more thing that Christianity makes sense of, and that's the intelligibility of the universe. So not only is it the fact that the universe had a beginning and that the universe is fine-tuned in order for life to exist, the constants are just right, but it's also the fact that we can understand it. Einstein put it this way. He said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. Does anyone have a dog? Have you tried to teach your dog physics? You should do this. Or, or like math, you know, if you're doing some math, you have some math homework, try and teach your dog. And you discover that your dog, well, he just isn't very good at doing physics. 
right? Maybe intuitively, right? But, but you can't really study these deep facts about the universe. You have a cat, you can put it in a library, and it can jump around and enjoy the furniture, but it won't appreciate the text that's written on the walls in the books, right? That, the, that they're just not able to understand the language of the room that they're in. However, we find ourselves in this situation where we actually can make sense of the world around us. Right? We're not just like an efficient, fish tank swimming around. We're able to reflect upon the world we live in. And we're able to come to knowledge of its deep structure. We can discover that it is finely tuned. Why is that? How is it possible that we can understand the world around us? I believe this is a problem for naturalism. Francis Crick phrases it this way. He indicates that a highly developed brains, a brains able of doing science, these really complicated brains we have, he says, under the naturalistic narrative, they were not evolved under the pressure of discovering scientific truth. We didn't evolve to know truth. We simply evolved to be clever enough to survive. And there's a big gap between those two things, right? Natural selection favors adaptability, the ability to survive, fitness, Right? The ability to reproduce and pass on genetic information. But that's not the same thing as the ability to understand truth. And therefore, if you embrace the naturalistic narrative, then why do you believe they're capable of knowing truth? Not just small truths like, there's a tiger over there I need to look out for, he might eat me. But the deep truths about the very structure and fabric of our universe. You see the problem? It's, it's why can we know truth? These deep facts about the universe. Why do we actually believe the convictions of our mind if our mind is merely the product of some unguided process? See, there are two worldviews. In Christianity, we say mind comes first, the mind of God, and matter comes second. The matter is derivative from mind. And therefore, when God made us, he made us in his image, and that's why we can give an account for why we can think and understand. But if you reverse the narrative, as naturalism does... And it says, no, matter came first, the universe, and our minds are merely derivative of matter. Then why should we trust those minds to be able to give us true thoughts about the world around us? Naturalism seems to be self-defeating. The mathematician John Lennox at Oxford University puts it this way. He says, naturalism isn't just shooting itself in the foot, it's shooting itself in the head. Because it's undermining our ability, our confidence for why we can trust our thoughts and why we can trust our reason. Let's come back to that in the Q&A. So C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, not only is it the case that, that we can understand the universe, but he gives an account of where this conviction came from. He says, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. In our next presentation, we'll go through some of this history, and we'll see that the, the foundation of modern science were individuals who were convicted of the intelligibility of the universe precisely because they believed in a lawgiver. Isaac Newton, for instance. Prior to Newton, there was this idea that there's one way that the heavens go, and there's some other way in which things on earth go. In the heavens, things go around. On earth, things fall down. But Isaac Newton says, no, but I believe in one God who created both heaven and earth. And therefore, I should expect one principle to explain both. The result, universal law of gravitation, is, is understanding that there's one law of gravity that explains both the orbits of the planets and why objects fall on Earth. And so it's their conviction that there was a mind behind the universe that led them to seek out our mathematical and physical descriptions of the world because they expected some kind of coherence in the world. Okay. So we see that Christianity has made sense of the beginning of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the intelligibility of the universe. But here's the one I get really excited about, and you're going to have to indulge me. As a mathematician, this is the one that I just get thrilled about. And it's not only as the universe is intelligible, but it's mathematical. I know some of you are like, oh, why are you talking about mathematics? I'm telling you, this is the coolest thing. So in mathematics, we, we have various ideas we come up with. Some of them are kind of weird, like, like, like pi. You know, one, two, three, th these are natural numbers. They, they kind of come from some nature, but, but pi, what is that? That's the circumference of the ratio. That's the ratio of the circumference to diameter of a circle, right? That's kind of a weird idea. It's an irrational number, 
it goes on forever. Or, or numbers like I. Maybe when you got to, to I in school, you're like, now this is just weird, right? I is the imaginary number. You're like, now they're just making things up, right? Like, what are they doing? It's true. Mathematicians just made this up because we're like, we want to be able to solve these algebraic equations, and sometimes you only get one real solution. So let's, let's force there to be another solution. We'll make it called an imaginary solution, right? Let's take the square root of negative numbers. Why not? We're just making things up. Or E, E is central to the study of the calculus. 2.71828182, it's irrational, it goes on forever. Fascinating, incredible number. Okay, so, so, so we have all these different ideas we develop in mathematics and geometry and algebra and study of the calculus. But then in mathematics, we discover things that somehow they all come together and they fit together in these beautiful ways. E to the i pi plus 1 equals 0. Take it in. Appreciate it. This is incredible. What is going on here? This is considered the most beautiful equation in mathematics. They've actually done studies. The University um, College London did a study where they brought in mathematicians and they, they hooked them up to brain scanners and, and they had them look at these equations. And when mathematicians looked at this equation, the emotional center of their brain went off. <laughs> I'm serious. It's, it's the same thing as like seeing a beautiful sunset or listening to music. It's like, whoa. Because there's this like incredible structure going on here. And it's, it's where, how, where did this come from? Right? We were just making stuff up, but it all comes together in this beautiful way. So Wigner is reflecting on this. Nobel Prize winning physicist, Eugene Wigner. And, and he noted, he says, the great mathematician fully, almost ruthlessly, exploits the domain of permissible reasoning. It skirts the impermissible. He's saying we do things that we make up I, right? Just weird stuff. But then he goes on and say that his recklessness does not lead him into a morass of contradictions is a miracle in itself. Mathematics should just end up in contradiction, right? But he says certainly it's hard to believe that our reasoning power was brought by Darwin's process of natural selection to the perfection which it seems to, which it seems to possess. That doing mathematics reveals that somehow we are deeply rational. And somehow we can pursue lines of evidence to arrive at truth. But, but how, could, how could a process of natural selection produce creatures capable of this? Right? This is, this is his question. He says, it seems to be a miracle. Suggestive language. But not only is it the fact that we can do mathematics, but he goes on to reflect on the fact that mathematics describes the universe. He says, the miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. You hear that language? It's a wonderful gift. It's a miracle, right? And he's not alone. Mathematicians and physicists marvel at this. Why is it that mathematics explains the world? And the crazy thing here is we made up this math just for the sake of doing cool math. But it then turned out a couple centuries later that this mathematics is essential to doing physics. We discovered the mathematics first because we thought it was interesting and beautiful and true. And then it turned out that that was the mathematics we needed to make sense of the universe. We can't do physics without I. Okay, so here's a really, really cool story. We have time for it? Okay, we have time for it. This is one of my favorite mathematical stories. So you know about like Geometry, Euclidean geometry, the geometry you do in, in high school, where you study geometry of a plane, points and lines and circles and triangles and all that. Okay, that's pretty cool stuff. But you can imagine doing geometry on other surfaces instead of a plane, like on a sphere, like when we navigate and, and we're sailing, when you think about geometry on a sphere, because we live on a sphere. I hope we all recognize that we live on a, on a sphere, right? Okay, not, not a plane. Not a plane, we live on a sphere. But then mathematicians started wondering, what if instead of doing a sphere of radius 1, we imagine doing mathematics on a sphere of radius i? Imaginary radius. And you're like, what does that even look like? A sphere of imaginary radius? Right? Like, like, how can you even imagine that? 
but these mathematicians, they were just, you know, they were tripping. They were like, let's just, let's just come up with it. It ends up looking like this two-sheeted hyperboloid. It's this crazy looking object, but it's, it's an imaginary sphere, it's a sphere of imaginary radius. And they started making up a whole geometry in this imaginary sphere. Like this. I'll pull up a picture at the end if you remind me. Okay, so this is, this is the mathematics that they're trying to do on this, on this imaginary sphere. It then turns out, when Einstein is trying to explain the nature of space-time, he's like, this Euclidean geometry, the geometry of a plane, doesn't work. And the geometry of a sphere, that's not it either. I need this non-Euclidean geometry that took place on this imaginary sphere. That's the geometry I need. And so Einstein's theory of general relativity is, is built upon this weird geometry. This, this mathematician just making things up turns out to be exactly what we needed to explain the fabric of space-time. Isn't that trippy? It's like, how is it that, that our minds are so structured to pursue truth and beauty just for the sake of it? But then it turns out that those ideals or things that we say that is true and beautiful in some deep and profound way, that is exactly what we need to explain the fabric of the world around us. Is that not a testimony to the fact that there's a, bo- a mind behind the universe? A mind which itself is passionate about the true and the beautiful and has made us in his image? And so I believe that Christianity makes sense of the mathematical structure of the universe. Not only that, though, there's one more thing that Christianity offers that naturalism cannot, and that's ultimate hope. We said that the universe has a beginning. There was some singularity from which the universe expanded into its current state. You might ask, okay, if the universe had a beginning, does it have an end? Naturalism has two scenarios. One is called the big crunch there was a big bang at the beginning, there's going to be a big crunch at the end. Where the universe has been expanding, but eventually it will slow down, and it will begin to contract back upon itself, and it will end up into a single point, a big crunch. That had a number of advocates for a while, but recently we did some experiments that showed us the expansion rate of the universe is actually speeding up. That we're expanding faster and faster and faster. Galaxies are moving away from each other. Which makes it suggest that it's not going to be a big crunch, but instead going to be a big chill. So, so what's the big chill? Well, as we continue to expand, as entropy continues to increase, we're going to use up all the heat energy. Stars will die. And as we use up all the heat energy, the temperature of the universe will drop down and approach absolute zero. And then there will be no more heat in the universe. And without any heat differentials, life becomes impossible. And so we'll end up with a cold, barren, lifeless universe. And that's the ultimate fate of the universe under naturalism. And the question becomes, in that day, granted it's not for a while, it's not like this is happening next week, right? But in that day, what significance will there be to anything that we have done? Why will it have mattered if you lived well or lived selfishly? Why will anything that humanity have accomplished matter if the ultimate fate is we end up in a dead, lifeless, cold, barren universe. What ultimate consequence could any of our actions possibly have, individually or collectively? Why does it matter that we did science? Why does it matter we discovered that e to the i pi plus one is zero, right? Why does any of this matter if that is the ultimate fate? But Christianity here diverges, and it says, no, instead there's a different vision for the future. Not a big crunch or a big chill, but instead we have this big hope that God is going to intervene in the history of the world to restore it, to make things right. Right? God is going to, to bring about this new order, new heavens and new earth. And so what I would suggest is that the weakness of naturalism is that it undermines any significance to our actions. Because it says in the end, we're just headed to oblivion. But Christianity says that we're headed to a new heavens and new earth that gives significance to each of our actions, each of our choices, both individually and collectively. So what have we seen? We've seen that biblical faith makes sense of the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the intelligibility of the universe, the mathematical structure of the universe, and it makes sense of why we can actually have ultimate hope. 
But you know, I've discovered something as a mathematician, and that's there's some things I can't explain mathematically. So this is a fun little comic. We're having some mathematicians trying to, to work out love. What's the square root of love, cosine of love, right? The, the derivative of love. And it says, my normal approach is useless here. It's a recognition that there's more to life than merely mathematic and mathematical and scientific descriptions. There's these whole other domains of what it means to be human. Now, some have failed to recognize this. Bertrand Russell, the great logician of the, of the 1900s, he, he claimed this. He said, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attainable by scientific methods. And what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. He's saying that the only true knowledge out there is scientific knowledge. And there's, everything else is, is, is false. He's an atheist, and so this is part of his critique of religion. Theology, that's not science, that's not real. No religion, all of that, that's, that's not science, that's not true knowledge. Scientific knowledge is the true knowledge. Has anyone heard this critique before? How many respond to the claim that only scientific knowledge is true knowledge, and what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know? How might you respond to that? Let me uh, pass the mic over. Uh, the thing is that uh, within science, we have the scientific method that mm-hmm. creates exact um, claims. But t- truth can be... Uh, there's, there's soft science, there's hard science. Mm-hmm. So basically, truth can be stuffed outside of the scientific method. The, because there's something that, that is true, there's something that is exact, something that we replicate through the scientific method. Mm-hmm. So there's, uh, I see that uh, there's distinction between what is true and what is exact. Good. Uh, I think part of what you're pointing out is part of the power of things like mathematics is that we limit the problems we work on to very precise, exact problems. We don't try and engage the big questions of ultimate meaning and purpose and, and what is love. We don't do that in mathematics. We limit ourselves to exact, precise mathematical statements. But there are all these other aspects of being human that these things do not engage with. Well, well he might just respond, well, that's what you can't have any true knowledge about that. You can't know anything true about those things. You can only know true things about science. Science, it works. How may you respond to this claim? I was thinking of an example, maybe something that we know but we cannot explain. And I was thinking about death. Okay. We are certain about death, but I highly doubt that science can explain death or life. Well, I can give a biological explanation of it. I can give some, some biological or physical account of why there's a cessation of life. But, but it seems like you're suggesting death in maybe a, a, a larger terms and, and the grand significance of what is life and death. Well, here's one possible critique I think we could, we could make of these kinds of claims. Bertrand Russell is claiming to know something. What is he claiming to know? Well, he's claiming to know that we can only know the things that science tells us, right? The question becomes, how does he know that? How does he know that we can only know the things that science tells us? Did he do an experiment? Did he mix some chemicals together and out came the result? You can only know what science tells you. No, this is not a scientific claim. He's making a philosophical claim. That is, he's making a claim to knowledge that is itself not scientific. It's a claim about science, but it's a philosophical claim. And so in making this, he himself recognizes that there's knowledge outside of science. He's appealing to non-scientific knowledge. He's appealing to the claim that science is the only thing we can know. And therefore, his claim is self-defeating. The criteria of his claim, you can only know what science tells you, is not met by the claim itself. Because the claim is not a result of the scientific method. You track with that? In addition to this, what if we would actually accept this claim? What would that mean? That would mean the end of... History and aesthetics and ethics and law and literature, as well as theology, right? I mean, it might be a nice way to, to dog theology, but are you willing to throw out all historical knowledge? All of our knowledge of the law, all knowledge about literature and, and beauty and ethical reasoning? This is not, these are important domains of knowledge that are outside of science. And so this kind of claim, it seems to be ignorant of all these other aspects of 
of human experience and human knowledge comes at an incredible cost. And it's self-defeating. Well, here's another objection. Maybe science isn't the only kind of knowledge, but it's the best kind of knowledge. Science is a superior form of knowledge because if we burned all science books, we could recover the knowledge lost via the scientific method. But if we burned all the religious books, burned all the Bibles, there was no method to recover the stories. So clearly science is better because we can recover the lost knowledge. Huh. How might you respond to that claim? How are people memorizing stuff? Okay, well, imagine I was able to erase everyone's memory as well. So, so somehow I was to reset the same, no. to reset everything. What about the earth? Uh, we have some powerful machine that's able to erase all knowledge. It's just a thought experiment, right? Okay, let's let someone else chime in. How might we respond to the claim that, that scientific knowledge is superior because we can recover it as if we erase all the religious stories, they'd be gone forever? I mean, this is just, you know, an assumption. We can say this is superior, but there's no reason for why we should assume it's superior. So okay, very you good. Could, you could say, yeah, religious stories are superior because we cannot reproduce ah, them. Ah, so, very good. So, so it's not clear why the ability to reproduce the knowledge would actually make it superior knowledge. Okay, excellent. You want to pass it down? We have one more comment. Uh, we could probably get it from the same place we got it initially, the Holy okay. Spirit. So if we actually believe that the religious texts are revealed from God, then we may expect that God would reveal it again. Well, if you can look at this objection, what it's really saying is, is it's not just a critique against religion. If you were to delete all knowledge, what other knowledge we lost forever? Well, knowledge of history, right? All of historical knowledge we lost. And that's really the force of this, because biblical account, religious knowledge, is historical knowledge. And so it's actually saying that, it, what it's pointing out to the fact is that, is that religion is grounded in history. But that's not a bug, that's not a weakness of religion, that's a strength of religion. That is actually grounded in history. And so these kinds of claims seem to not respect the significance of historical events. Right? It seems to think that the knowledge detached from history is superior. But there's no reason to believe that. In fact, Albert Einstein recognized that in some ways there's knowledge that's far superior to scientific knowledge. And that's ethical knowledge. He put it this way. He says, it's not a problem of physics, but of ethics. It is easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of man. That is, you know, it's possible for us to solve these scientific problems, but if, that, if humans continue to harbor evil in their hearts, then what's the ultimate end? And he has in mind here the creation of the nuclear bomb, right? We solved this great scientific problem, but maybe we didn't have the ethical maturity to know how to use that science, right? And so he's pointing out that it's great to have scientific progress, But if that happens independent of ethical progress as well, of, of moral clarity and insight, then we are going to destroy ourselves, right? Ah, that's right. So the Cold War, this was a, the, a problem at the heart of it. Okay. So I want to end with this quote, and I'll give you guys a few minutes for some questions. It's from Our High Calling. And I really appreciate this. Ellen White reminds us that the gospel does not address the understanding alone. That the gospel is not merely an intellectual activity. If it did, we might approach it as we approach the study of a book dealing with mathematical formulas, which relate to the intellect alone. Pythagoras' theorem, A squared plus B squared is C squared. Fantastic intellectual exercise. But she points out that the aim of the gospel is the heart. And therefore, what Scripture is trying to do is more than just change our understanding, although there is an intellectual component to it, it's also trying to transform our heart. That is, it's trying to change the kind of moral creatures that we are, to transform us back into the likeness of God. And I just want us to keep that in mind, that ultimately as we're talking about explanatory power of, of Christianity, it's not just about making sense of the data of the world, it's about a power that's able to transform hearts as well. 
Well, let me go ahead and turn it over to you for some questions. We have about five or ten minutes where I'm happy to um, take any questions you might have about science or faith or anything that came up in the context of the presentation. And just please make sure you speak into the mic. Um, I really appreciated your talk. Thank you. I'm, I'm a scientist as well. And uh, there's two things I wanted to, to comment about. One was the, this idea of, of uh, well, first of all, the, the idea of faith. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it talks about faith be, having something to do with substance and evidence. Mm-hmm. Okay? So in your very first uh, set of comments, you talked about the, the, uh, the origin of God, mm-hmm. uh, that he always was. Mm-hmm. In John 1, it expands upon the Psalms text that you gave a little mm-hmm. bit more. Yep. Um, but do you see anything in there that doesn't, that takes that beyond just a claim? In other words, what is the evidence for that? Mm-hmm. And I believe that claim, mm-hmm. but I, I, I would like to be more confident about mm-hmm. the evidence for yeah. that. So um, and, we, yesterday in one of my presentations, we talked a little bit about the nature of faith. And one of the things we said is that faith relates to evidence in this way. It doesn't go against the evidence that God has given us evidence that points in the direction of faith, but that faith always takes a step beyond the evidence. That is, faith is us choosing to consciously commit to something that has evidence pointing in that direction, but we're taking a step into commitment. And I gave the example of zip lining. I did this zip lining adventure um, in, in um, Zimbabwe this summer. It's fantastic. But, you know, when you zip line, you look at the evidence that says this zip line is strong. It'll hold me up. It hasn't had too many people, you know, fall off and die. It has a good history. It's good evidence for me to trust it. But I'm not merely going to intellectually consent to it's a good zip line. I'm now going to take the step of actually going on the zip line. And the Christian walk is similar in this way, where we can have good evidence for believing in God, but at some point we have to exercise our faith and step into that relationship with God. And so that's the first thing I want to say about uh, the relationship between faith and evidence. Faith is stepping in the direction which the evidence is pointing. Now, about the eternality of God, I think one thing that we could say to help us understand why God is everlasting and eternal is because God, unlike the universe, is a necessary being while the universe is a contingent object. So the distinction between necessary and contingent is contingent means it could have been some other way. Right? Like you can imagine the, the laws of nature being slightly different. The universe could have been some other way. It's contingent in that way. God himself as the ground of all being is necessary. And therefore, as being necessary, he is eternal. He, he is, his, his being is itself the, God is not a, a merely a derivative of something else. God is not merely the, an afterthought, a product of something else. God himself is the necessary ground of all being. Uh, we can explore that idea further, but that's probably where most philosophers would uh, try to understand some basis for the eternality of God. Uh, I would push back, though, and I'm not sure if we need to always give a reason for everything about God. Right? Like, there's a danger of trying to explain away everything about God. Right? Like, like, why does God have this attribute, this attribute, this attribute? And so, the power of an explanation is that it lets you see something more clearly. So an explanation is to serve like a window. Like, why is the world this way? You have an explanation, you can see through it. But C.S. Lewis makes the point that if you go trying to explain away forever, it's as if the whole world was transparent. If everything was window then you wouldn't be able to see anything. So if you are always explaining something away, and if explanation does not eventually arrive at some ground, at some foundation, then you haven't actually explained anything. You're just continuing to move one step further in infinite regress. But, but Lewis points out that we need to have some endpoint of our explanations. And for the Christian, God is the endpoint. So we don't try and explain away God. Rather, we see God as the foundation of explanation. And so when we accept belief in God, it makes sense of all these other things that I've been trying to show. Is that distinction clear? So I would just be cautious in us going down the road of trying to give an account for everything about God and try and have some other foundation for reality because God himself is the ground of all being. Okay, let's um, do another question. Uh, Where's the mic? 
Yeah, please speak into it. So I'm a student and I learned science and we've learned that some science concepts are not true. So is it okay if I put on a paper to get a grade? Okay, very good. So um, you're asking a very practical question. As a student, maybe I'm writing a report about something and the question is, um, can I just write down what the scientific theory says even if I don't believe it to be true, even if I believe it to be in tension with some teaching of scripture? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so maybe there's a couple things I could say. One is um, scientists in general tend to recognize that science is not in truth as in this is the absolute, we've arrived, this is the description of the universe. Scientists tend to view science as we're getting better and better approximations of truth. That is, Newton had some way of understanding the world. That was pretty good. But then Einstein came along with a better way that's more accurate. And eventually we expect some, some further uh, refinement that's going to be an even better way of understanding the world. Right? So within science already is the idea that these claims aren't actually true. It's just our best attempt right now to explain the world. And, and so I think if you understand it in that context then you're free in your paper to write about this is what the current models suggest, this is what they say, but they rely upon assumptions, they rely upon these things, and so these are not actually absolute claims to truth. And if we had additional knowledge, then we may come to a different picture or understanding of the world. Is that fair? So, so you can decide to what degree you want to go down that road, to what degree you want to couch everything you say in the context of this is what the theory of the model says. But I think it's fine for you to show that you understand these theories and you understand those models in the context of knowing that they're simply models or theories that are our best attempts to explain the world, but are inherently limited by the assumptions we make. Right, let's, let's get one or two more questions in. Um, I mean, I just wanted to... I guess, add to what he was asking, yeah. just because I'm a high school chemistry teacher in a public school. And um, to his point, when, you know, when I sit in faculty meetings, um, I think on a higher level, or maybe scientists at the university level, um, are thinking in the way that you described. Yeah. But from your high school science teacher, I've sat in department meetings where, you know, teachers, my colleagues have said, oh, you know, such and such student thinks that God is involved in this, yeah. but I told him, no, that's not true. And they're very, you know, happy and, and proud of doing that because they feel like, you know, they're doing science and real science. And I think um, at yeah. the high school level, you definitely have teachers that aren't as aware or aren't as um, or aren't as knowledgeable and yeah. aren't as open. And so you can very well have a student who writes something like that on a paper and the teacher just gives them an F or marks it wrong. So, so I think there that's something. There two more things I could say in this direction. Uh, one is I encourage all of us, and I'll do some of them in the next presentation, to review the history of science and look at people like Newton and Galileo and Kepler and others, these pioneers of science, and, and they very much talked about God being involved. They would often quote the Psalms in their scientific work, right? And so you can see that they had a high view. They didn't see that their science was, was taken away from the appreciation of God, but it was enriching it. So in a, in a scientific context, if you want to make some appeal to God, you could do it by quoting some of the pioneers. And that's, a, that's still a legitimate academic way to, to um, engage that. Um, and then the second is, I, I think it would be fantastic if high school students had a better understanding of the philosophy of science, recognizing the limits of science, recognizing that scientific knowledge is not absolute final knowledge, and that it depends upon the assumptions we make and all these other aspects. Okay, let's do one last question, and then um, I want to give you guys a little break. I, I wanted to ask um, some of your, if you have any comments on the uh, God of the gaps argument. Yep. I know John Lennox talks about it a little yep. bit, and he'll argue with other individuals about it. He has yep. a chapter on it, but his book is a little sophisticated, so yep. I don't know if you have like a simple or, or, or comments on yep. the God of the gaps yep. arguments. Yeah, so the idea of the God of the gaps is um, when you don't understand something in science, you say, God did it. Lightning, where does it come from? It must be the gods, Right. But then what happens over time is we come up with some scientific explanation of where lightning comes from, and now you don't need the gods anymore, right? And so the danger of simply well, God must have done it is that as our scientific knowledge grows, then the god seems to get smaller and smaller. However, notice what I've been doing here is I haven't been appealing to our ignorance, but our scientific knowledge. And I've been saying, look at what we've discovered in science fine-tuning, origin of the universe, these things, and look how God makes sense of these things. 
And so it's not saying that well, we don't understand or we don't know, but we do know. It's what we do know in science that's giving us a greater appreciation and greater confidence that there is a God and there is a creator of the universe. And so I find that to be a much more healthy approach. Um, I would also want to um, just add that having a scientific explanation for something does not rule out a God explanation as well. And John Lennox, um, he, he makes this point very well. For instance, you might ask, why is the water boiling? Right? You know, you put some water on, on the stove, it's boiling, and you might ask, why is it boiling? And you can give a fantastic scientific account for that. You can explain the, the transfer of heat energy and what's going on there. But there's also the explanation while I'm making myself a cup of tea. Now, those are both valid explanations. One involves an agent who has some purpose that he's trying to accomplish. One involves a scientific description of what's going on. Both explanations are true. And for us as Christians, when we come to a scientific explanation of something, this is not necessarily saying that, therefore, God cannot be involved. It may simply be revol- uh, indicating this is how God has ordered the universe. This is how God has structured the universe. So coming to understand how God has done it doesn't undermine our confidence that there's an agent behind it or a mind behind it. Rather, it gives us greater confidence of the mind behind it because we can see how incredibly sophisticated and fantastic the, the world around us is. Well, let me stop there. I'm happy to talk more with you one-on-one, but I want to give you a 10-minute break before our next session. We're going to explore the book of Genesis and continue this discussion of should we take Genesis seriously? What's the relationship between faith and science? This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.